top floor. Next we discover and he's like the prayer warrior of this world. Next we discover God being slow to anger again, attempting to reason with his prophet. This time God gave him a visual lesson. He erected an object of Jonah's affection, his creaturely comforts, and contrasted it with the object of God's own concern, souls of people. So he contrasted his creaturely comforts to the souls of man. Remember John 3, 16 through 17, 2 Peter 3, 9, all speak of God's heart towards the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But God, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. 2 Peter says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness is on the second return. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now we discover God rebuking Jonah again. But in this instance, not through a storm, rather by exposing the selfishness of his likes and dislikes. As a sulking child over the fate of Nineveh, he withdrew in and out of the city and sat alone and remained silent. He witnessed the Ninevites repent and reform, and he was not happy about it. The, four, the 40 days were now coming to an end, or had come to an end, and Jonah hoped that if Nineveh was not overthrown, then some other judgment would come up upon them that would be enough to save his reputation. See, he had two things at stake. One, he didn't like the Ninevites, and two, he, his reputation was at stake because of what he said. So he made himself a booth in, with the bow trees, to wait and watch. God knew that Jonah was very uncomfortable sitting in the booth he constructed, so he graciously provided a vine and caused it to grow large leaves that would protect him from the sun. How very kind of God as a prophet had so foolishly caused these problems himself. How many times do we run ahead and we cause our own troubles? Jonah was sitting in his shelter, fretting over the cold of the night and the heat of the day, and God looked on him with compassion as a tender mother looks on her contrary child. God's actions, of course, pleased Jonah and made him very happy to be more comfortable. It was a shadow over his head to deliver him from self-imposed grief so that being physically refreshed, he might be better protected from the anxieties in his mind, basically so that he could think clearer. As we have stated, when we are in discomfort, it's hard for us to think clearly. Jonah was exceedingly happy over this gourd. Small toy will sometimes pacify a bad-tempered child. As a fine, pacified Jonah... But God had a teaching lesson for our protagonist in this and in, 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 in this. And the next morning, he prepared a worm to destroy the vine. This is now treasure. This was Jonah's big treasure. And Jonah again became unhappy. Go figure. With the sudden loss of provision that God had made for his refreshment, his troubles returned. Sometimes our comforts spring forth like flowers and are soon cut down. We must not look upon God's little mercies and comforts expectantly or deservedly. He gives, he takes away, as he both gives and takes away for our good. Rather, we are to hold them with open hands and grateful hearts. God did not send an angel to uproot Jonah's vine, but a worm to strike it. He also prepared a hot wind to make the prophet feel the lack of the gourd. It was a vehement, scorching east wind which drove the heat of the rising sun violently onto Jonah's head. And he was therefore exposed to the sun and the wind. And he was miserable. I mean, I, you can just feel that. I'm just, I just hate this. 
Here is the biblical affirmation that God controls every element of his creation. Every single one of them. You step in the red, how you going to react? (laughs) And does use any element in it for his own purposes. I'm reminded of the story of the Exodus and what God tells Moses prior to Exodus 3, 16 through 22. It says, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what you have done, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. All these are their enemies. A land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know, this is God talking, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. And everything happened just like he said. Go figure. The combination of the hot sun and the smothering desert wind made our protagonist want to die even more. It appears that those who love to complain should never be left without something to complain about, that their <laughs> foolishness may be revealed and corrected. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, Jonah was selfishly glad for his own comfort, but not for the Ninevites' relief from judgment. I mean, you know that we're so selfishly oriented. Wah, 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 I don't have the air conditioning. But I don't worry about these people that don't have anything to eat. You know what I'm saying? Or, I don't know, five million other things. As he had done in the depths of the sea, God was reminding Jonah of what it's like to be lost. Helpless, hopeless, and miserable. He wanted him to feel what the Ninevites were feeling. Jonah was experiencing a taste of hell as he sat and watched the city. He who so foolishly caused these problems for himself, y'all just pray that. Lord, I don't want to cause my own problems. There are enough problems out here. I mean, that are just going to happen, but don't let me pick it. Please let me learn it in the classroom. Please don't let me go down those roads. First, by Nineveh's repentance, and now by the loss of the shade of the vine, that he was ready to give it all up. A simple test of character for us is to ask ourselves what makes me happy? What makes me angry? What makes me want to give up? Hmm. So trite. It's so pathetically trite. Well, I'm talking to me, always. Jonah was a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, as James 1.8 says. One minute he's preaching God's word, the next minute he's disobeying it and fleeing his post of duty. While inside the great fish, he prayed to be delivered, but now he asked the Lord to kill him. He called the city to repentance, but he would not repent himself. He was more concerned about creature comforts than he was about winning the lost, about his reputation over the self, rather than the salvation of others. Ironically, the great fish, the Ninevites, the vine, the worm, the wind, they all obeyed God. 
But Jonah, his prophet, still refused to obey. And he had the most to gain. Father, I just thank you for the day. I thank you for Jonah's life because, Lord, it just screams Beth Yo. I pray, Father, that you would cleanse me of all unrighteousness, that you would fill me, Lord, to overflowing, that I would be a, um, be a, a light for you in this world of darkness. I pray for each one of us here today that you would strengthen our walks and our resolves, Lord, that you would help us to consider our frame, that you would help us to think of our focus and, and to help us to fix our minds on things above and on your word, Lord, that doesn't perish and doesn't, it's eternal. I pray, Father, that you would uh, use each, each lady here and their, their spheres of influence, their children, their husbands, their, their, all the far-reaching spheres that they, they all are, have, and I ask that you would use them mightily, Lord. And I thank you for their lives, and I ask that you would be glorified through them this week. And I pray this for Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want me now? Do you want me to sing to her? Yes, you can sing. That's right. Okay. About be thou my vision. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Only one missionary is honored with a global holiday. And only one is known by his own distinct color of green, St. Patrick, of course, missionary to Ireland. Patrick was born in 373 A.D. That's a long time ago. Along the banks of of the River Clyde in what is now called Scotland. His father was a deacon, his grandfather a priest. When Patrick was about 16, raiders descended on his little town and torched his home. When one of the pirates spotted him in the bushes, he was seized, hauled, aboard and taken to Ireland as a slave. He's 16. There he gave his life to Jesus. The Lord opened my mind to an awareness of my unbelief, he later wrote, in order that I might remember my transgressions and turn with all my heart to the Lord my God. Patrick eventually escaped and returned home. His overjoyed family begged him to never leave again. But one night in a dream, reminiscent of Paul's vision to the Macedonian man in Acts 16, Patrick saw an Irishman pleading with him to come and evangelize Ireland. It wasn't an easy decision, but Patrick, about 30, returned to his former captors with only one book, the Latin Bible, in his hand. As he evangelized the countryside, multitudes came to listen. The superstitious druids, or however you say it, opposed him and sought his death. But his preaching was powerful, and Patrick became one of the most fruitful evangelists of all time, planting about 200 churches and baptizing 100,000 converts. His work endured, and several centuries later, the Irish church was still producing hymns, prayers, sermons, and songs of worship. In the 8th century of an unknown poet wrote a prayer asking God to be his vision, his wisdom, and his best thought by day or night. And no, no one knows who wrote Be Thou of My Vision, but Robert Morgan was writing on Ireland because of, of that, from where he came from. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Okay, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Therefore, in Second Corinthians, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light... And momentary troubles, 
our troubles don't seem light and momentary, do they? And I'm certainly they they didn't seem to Paul either. Are producing in us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Since then, in Colossians, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, all authority, I'm over everything, has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. For lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the world. Okay, so our passage today is Jonah 4, 4 through 8. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. (laughs) Though Jonah knew that God was slow to anger, he still greatly desired for the Lord to execute his wrath swiftly, at least towards the Ninevites, that is. Certainly not towards him. Yet in our verses for today, we discover God being graciously kind and compassionate, as well as slow to anger, not only with the Ninevites, but with our protagonist. It reminds me of the words of Titus 3, 3 through 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, These things are excellent, profitable for everyone. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Whom did ever God, whom has God ever, whom has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We discover in our text for today that God is seeking, reason, seeking to reason with Jonah by asking his sulking messenger whether his anger was justified. 
do you have any right to be angry? A question that implied a negative response, obviously. The wording indicates God basically saying, is it morally good for you to burn with anger against me? By the way, it's never a very good idea to angrily question what the God of all creation does. God certainly does not mind our asking him questions regarding our circumstances. Rather, it was the deserving, expectant, angry attitude of Jonah's heart that was getting him into deep water. He expected God to explain to him what he was up to as if he were on the level ground with God in understanding his ways. To be sure, this was simply not going to happen. Jonah couldn't understand God's ways even if he had clearly told him. And neither can we. As a friend of my family used to say, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. And that's the truth. We do not see the end from the beginning. God does not as God does, nor do we see clearly, but only a poor reflection as in a mirror. God tells us in scripture through the pen of Isaiah 46, 8 through 10, remember this, fix it in mind, take it it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those long ago, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, but still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Jonah certainly had no right to be angry. Indeed, no one has rights before God. We all are beggars at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us. All are on level ground. I'm reminded of God's words to his servant Job's questionings of his actions. At the end of Job, after he had suffered greatly and continuously and was totally spent. Remembering, remember, Job is the one whom God has called blameless. We discover now God calling Job into account in Job 38 too. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the first foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Then God proceeds with several chapters, not verses, chapters, are filled with, all filled with questions that Job had no idea how to respond to. God did not answer Job's questions. Rather, God turned it around and asked Job questions. Questions too hard for him to understand and for him to even know. Indeed, in the end of all God's inquiries, Job had certainly realized his place. And he rightly confesses in 42, 1 through 6. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you and I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. I have no right to open my mouth. God can take our pleadings 
That's not what I'm saying. But he's on, but he is on the throne, not us. And his ways are higher and better than ours, whether it seems like it or not. As they are always, always working in and through us eternal glories, like Paul said, that far outweighs them all. Every circumstance you're going through that you don't like, what is working in you far outweighs it in heaven. Wait. Oh, sorry. Let me get this. Um, This is by a girl called Glenna Marshall. Wait, what not to ask when hope is deferred. Hope deferred does make the heart sick, the Bible says, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. This lady writes, I wish I were good at waiting. I've sure had a lot of practice, 15 years of infertility, six years of chronic pain condition, five years of an adoption process, and even with all that experience, I still chafe at how slowly the Lord seems to act when I'm praying for a season to end. <laughs> Amen to that. I've <clears throat> rarely viewed waiting as anything but a prison. For most of the years, I just wanted out. We all grapple with unfulfilled desires, marriage, children, financial stability, physical health. Insert your deferred hope here. We long for broken things to be mended, empty things to be filled, tragic things to end. So when we plead with the Lord to change things, so when we plead with the Lord to change things, but we keep waking to unchanged circumstances, we want to know why. And if we could have a definitive time frame for those changes, that would be even better. But the Bible doesn't guarantee our deferred hopes will be met with our desired outcomes. They're not guaranteed. Believe me. The Bible doesn't guarantee our deferred hopes will be met with our desired outcomes. Believe me, I've looked. I've spent years coming God's word for a special word that would speak to my empty womb or my broken body. I've longed to know when my waiting will end, and I've wondered why God ordained this path for me. When and why are the questions we ask God the most. But as I worked through scripture looking for the answers, I discovered I was asking the wrong questions. Why and when will not satisfy. When we can't change our circumstances, we're quick to question why God has let this happen or why he won't change it. Consider Job, who had no inkling of the conversation between God and Satan. Job wasn't privy to that conversation. You can go this far and no further. God has stipulations on Satan. As we read the whole story, we can see purpose in Job's suffering and understanding that God was revealing and refining Job's faith. But for Job, it seemed arbitrary. He longed to know why God had permitted so much sorrow in his life, and he had to endure lecture after lecture from his friends. In the end, God answered Job's why with a who. With a who. Not with a reason, but with a person himself. When God cuts into the conversation about whether Job's suffering was deserved, he simply describes his mighty acts and unassailable sovereignty. Instead of knowing why he must wait, Job needed to grasp who God was. And remembering that his life was in the hands of his creator sustained Job. After hearing God's self-declaration, Job came to this conclusion, I know that you can do all things, just what I just read. No plan of yours can be thwarted. The Lord doesn't fault Job for asking his questions, but in his answer to Job, he never explains why. The truth of God's sovereign wisdom was the answer Job needed, and it was the answer that satisfied him, even though he had no explanation for his losses. Job learned he could trust God with his life. 
If, you, if we can't know the why of our waiting, we often move to when. We long to know that our waiting has a guaranteed expiration date. We can endure, we believe, if we know when it will end. The short answer is that there is a guaranteed end to our waiting or suffering, but it is not for us to know when the day will be. It's in Revelation. One day God will right every wrong, bringing complete healing and restoration to our bodies and relationships. But even then, if we, if we had a date on the calendar, we'd still find a way to worry about it or try to speed things along. Waiting like that doesn't cultivate trust in the God who cares for us and has ordered our steps. He's got a plan for your life. He said he did. He wants you to walk in it. He wants you to walk in it bad, and you want to walk in it. It's for your good. It's pleasing and perfect, he says. If we hinge our trust in God to a certain earthly timeline, we're not really trusting him. We're trusting in our schedule. Who, and it says, will satisfy. After a decade of waiting, I finally quit asking when and why. As I opened my Bible each day, I couldn't bend the scriptures to say something that God hadn't said, and I was weary of trying. Instead, I began asking, who are you, God? Over the next two years, while still waiting for my circumstances to change, I wrote down all the things I learned about God from scripture each day. Stacks of spiral notebooks piled up, each page filled with notes about his character, his kindness, his love, his mercy, his grace. I'd known these facts in my head, but now I saw them revealed every day in pain and grief and in joy and laughter. I learned that he is holy, just, wise, sovereign, faithful, and present. If we hinge our trust in God to a certain earthly, oh, I said, learning about God's character taught me to trust him to wait with peace because he has proven himself faithful time and again. He sent Jesus to meet my greatest need in paying for my sins on the cross. See, I think sometimes we just kind of gloss over that, like we're not that bad. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Such a gracious and kind God can be trusted with waiting for other lesser needs. As Paul encourages us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, how will he not also graciously, along with him, graciously give us all things? As we wait with deferred hopes, may we find comfort in God's unchanging character, knowing that our ultimate hope is anchored in him. It is natural, uh, Newton writes, for us to wish and to plan, and it is merciful for the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. For we cannot be safe or happy until we are weaned from our own wills and may simply desirous of being directed by his guidance. Although we understand this, we seldom learn to put it into practice without being trained for a while in the school of disappointment. The schemes we form seem so plausible and convenient that when they're broken, we're ready to say, what a pity. We try again with no better success and we are grieved and perhaps angry and plan another and so on. Eventually, in the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are no more able than we are worthy to choose correctly for ourselves. The Lord's invitation to cast our cares upon him and his promise to take care of us appear valuable. And when we have done the planning, his plan in our favor gradually opens, and he does more and better for us than we could either ask or think. I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine, which if it had taken place in the time and in the way I wanted, would, humanly speaking, have proved my ruin. 
or at least would have deprived me of the greater good the Lord had designed for me. We judge things by their present appearance, but the Lord sees them in their consequences. He sees the fullness of it, of the action. If we could do the same, we would be perfectly of his mind. But since we can't, it is an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us, whether we are pleased with his management or not, and it is regarded as one of the heaviest judgments when he gives any person up to the way of their own hearts and to walk according to their own wisdom. I love that quote. A person should never angrily question what God does, even when it differs from what he expects or wants. God does not answer to us. He is not our magic genie. He's not, he, he doesn't answer to us. It is always best to remember to will what God wills brings peace. Let's never forget that some of God's greatest mercies are his refusals. Sometimes, and he's got, I mean, Beth Moore used to say, he loves us so much. I mean, his no's are always going to be for a greater yes. His no's are always going to be for a greater yes. I think about, um, well, I don't want to go down that way because i got so much I want to say. Um, your name just popped right here. Again, God always, always has our best interests at heart, even if we do not readily perceive it with our emotions. Donna Evans, um, I don't know why I take all these things out. She wrote, she writes those little Bible bits. But anyway, she's my friend here that has a child that's um, autistic. It's 35 years old now, I guess. And they're trying, and he's, he's hard, it's getting harder and harder for she and her husband to manage. And um, they are looking for an adult uh, Christian place for him to go. Anyway, and he's on this list at this Rainbow Omega place, and it's in, kind of in Gaston anyway. And they're just waiting. He had to go and be interviewed and had to go. This, and she writes, all of this means we wait, because everybody was asking her about it, and pray and pray, wait and wait, trusting God to open doors that need to be opened and closing ones that need to be closed. And yes, it's hard waiting for this. Type A driven push until you get it done, girl. Special needs mama. I mean, she's like on steroids pushing until you get it done. She's like one of these people that, you know, my older sister. Looking back over James Bruce's 35-year life, however, I've realized that God has always provided every single thing we've needed. Most of the time, however, it wasn't one minute before we needed it. Someone once quipped that God's on, an on-time God, never late but seldom early, and I second that observation. Late Wednesday afternoon, I was driving down her street on my way home from an, an errand, and James Bruce was in his usual place in the back seat. I was deep in my thoughts. Actually, I was stewing and brewing with frustration over the residential process and the hard discipline of, the patient, of patiently waiting. It is a hard discipline to patiently wait. All of a sudden, James Bruce begins singing an old Twilight Pira song of the 80s. It's not unusual for him to sing, but the words of the song and James Bruce's timing and delivery caught my attention as I heard the words, God is in control. We believe that his children will not be forsaken. God is in control. We will choose to remember and never be shaken. There is no power above or beside him. We know God is in control. Needless to say, Paris's God is in control lyrics weren't lost on me, and I started laughing at James Bruce's timing and God's sense of humor. At that moment, I needed to be reminded that God is indeed in control and that his children will never be forsaken and that I need to choose to remember 
his sovereignty. I'm reminded again of the correct response of blameless Job, who in a matter of moments progressively lost all he had, even his ten children. In Job 1, 8 through 22, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, the accuser says. Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from his presence of the Lord. When one day Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they were dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my father's womb, mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin in wrongdoing, in charging God with wrongdoing, in charging God with wrongdoing. He did not sin in charging God with wrongdoing. Job's response here is amazingly stellar. Certainly it appears the saint of old lived a life with open hands, which I've told y'all before. You might as well learn to live that way or you're going to be tired of your fingers being pulled over. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly it appears the saint of old lives his life this way, not grasping what God has put in him. He trusted in the goodness of God even in the direst of circumstances, even when he could make no sense out of the situation. Indeed, the circumstances were so intense and horrible that we discovered the following reaction from his friends who came to encourage him. This passage reflects the best things these friends did for him in his anguish. After that, their actions were downhill all the way. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the name of whatever, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their home and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. When they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, because they saw how great his suffering was. They were just there for a week without saying a word. Now back to our story. The prophet Jonah certainly had had good theology, But it never made it down from his head to his heart to his hands 
Somebody's calling you. Oh, no, they're calling me. Uh, to his hands. I was going to say it was going to mess up your thing. No. Um, he was so distraught that God's actions, <clears throat> over God's actions of staying his mighty, all-powerful hand towards the Ninevites, that he was just furious and fit to be tied. He wanted them destroyed, and he didn't want them saved. What do we do when we're in a Jonah state of mind? Just annoyed, furious, depressed, anxious, or whatever over all that is going down in our lives. What do we do? What's your MO? When things are not going at all as we had planned, and we just want to flee or give up or just flat go home to be with the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm reminded of the psalmist's words in Psalm 42, 5 and 6. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise, yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. And in verse 8, by day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I submit to you for your consideration the following three habits to consider. Accomplished through the power, of course, of the Holy Spirit. When we find ourselves in the midst of these low state of emotions, because, y'all, it seems like they're, seems daily, doesn't it? Or moment by moment, moment by moment. We're going to call them our frame, our focus, and our fix. And this is kind of coming from Paul's directives in Scripture of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. The first one is our frame. Consider if you are tired or hungry or suffering physical pain. Our beings are made up of body, soul, and spirit. And when one of them is out of whack, it oftentimes makes the other two follow suit. I know if I have a migraine, I'm going to be slapping that bed. I can't do anything else. And I can't even pray. It hurts so bad. To be sure, our bodies can scream out and take all of our attention. Chronic pain and depression can cause helpless feelings as well as, as we oftentimes seek to pull ourselves up by our own power or strength, which makes us go back down in the pit. Like, we know better, but we just go further down. And that is simply not going to happen. We're not going to be able to raise ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are to get through these times by the power of the Spirit which indwells every believer in Jesus. I'm reminded of God's kind treatment toward Elijah after his Mount Carmel experience. He, was, he had had this spiritual high. I mean, high. It was awesome. And then he hears Jezebel coming after him, and so he flees, tucks tail and flees. He had, uh, in about 0.9 seconds, many of us can say amen to that, you know. We'd be so good, and then all of a sudden, bam, flat on, flat on our face. We have to remember that our bodies are simply jars of clay. We're not, we're not, not in eternal frames. They're going to hurt. They get tired. They need sleep. They need rest, and they need food. And when our bodies are off kilter, our minds often think things are hopeless. Remember, nothing is hopeless with God. In Elijah, in 1 Kings um, 19, 19, 3-7, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Like I said, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. 
He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I'm, t- I'm done with this, Lord. I've had enough, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel came and touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. He needed food and he needed rest. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. I was talking last night to, uh, uh, who's that guy that preached, uh, what was his name? I was telling you about that young guy. Rich. Who? No. Um, here. Tim Keller? No. Oh, oh. Um, no. Uh, uh, Clayton. 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 <laughs> <laughs> that, that was hard to birth. That was really hard to birth. He's, he's so nice. I know him. My, my mind just went totally bad. And he was. He was yeah, that's going to We're going down the list. But he was saying, I said, oh, we, we really enjoyed your service the other day. He said, yeah, I was just so worn out. Mm-hmm. Preaching two times in a row. I said, I know. I, I get it. I'm sure you were. He said, I don't know how people, because some of these ministers can do four services. And when you're doing spiritual things, like in your field, in your path, you just are it's like a wet rag or something. Well, this is how Elijah felt. But by the fourth time, they're pretty good at it. I mean, I, I know. Mean, you so much more. Like, I, I know. I know. By that, by then, you've got it. You yeah, exactly. Days, got it down perfect. That last one in the day. Exactly. So the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. God sweetly supplied his prophet with sleep and sustenance, and on that he was able to travel 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, the next one is our focus. Where are your eyes? Are they on your circumstances? Or are they on the Savior of your circumstances? Are they on your own strength or on God's omnipotent power? Scripture tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. This will enable us not to lose heart when we are in circumstances not of our choosing. Hebrews tells us, therefore, since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Throw it off. Throw it off. Is that if, if you're convicted of it, it's just better go ahead and do it because he's going to keep doing the same thing over and over again until you finally do it. Everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance to race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix them on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. How did he live his life? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Asaph also had almost slipped in Psalm 73 because his focus was wrong. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now where are his eyes? They have no struggles. And besides that, when your eyes are off of God and you're looking at something else, you don't see the whole picture. You only see what the outside. You only see the airbrushed version of what's going on intentionally inside. 
Ah, it, but it makes you, you feel like you are. I, um, they have no struggles. Your bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. See, this is, this is Jonah's problem with the Ninevites. He doesn't like them because they're bad people, or he thinks they're bad. He does, and it, but it makes him realize, forget that he's bad. It makes him forget that, he's, that God's been merciful to him. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the, does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree, and they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I mean, he's going down a big rabbit hole. <clears throat> in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, where is us? Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors, as a dream when one awakens. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your good deeds. See, God desires for none to perish. It breaks his heart that these are brute beasts and that they have turned. It's all so askew. Leave your weariness behind you, John Bloom says. The gears of God's justice sometimes grind slowly. So slowly that we may not even notice them turning during our brief sojourn on earth. We even begin to wonder if they're really turning at all. Asaph writes, the guy we just wrote about, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But what? But Asaph had really struggled to believe that. His biblical theology and history told him God is good and God is just. But as he looked on the way things evidently operated in the real world around him, Asaph read a different narrative. He watched unashamedly wicked people prosper, seeming to avoid the hardships most of humanity is subject to. He watched them violently oppress others without God seeming to lift a finger to stop them or protect the oppressed. He watched them in their luxuriant ease, blasphemy God with apparent impunity. Like many suffering Christians today, he watched while the godless flourished. But what I want y'all to know, y'all, is that he cares for these godless people too. Hard on those he loves 
Meanwhile, when Asaph looked at his own experience, he couldn't help wondering why in the world he was fighting so hard to keep his heart clean and his hands innocent, only to find himself stricken and rebuked by God every morning. What's with that? Hard on those who love him and seemingly easy on those who hate him? That looks a lot like turning justice on its head. Asaph's feet almost stumbled over whether God truly is good to Israel. He could have said, as Teresa of Avila allegedly did, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder why you have so few of them. Thus Asaph, endeared, thus, Asaph is endeared to us, an ancient friend who understands. He understands the hard experience of living in what can look and feel like a world of inverted justice. <clears throat> Where bitterness takes root, we know Deep down, God can't approve of this inversion. The fact that humanity shares such a massive consensus regarding what's just and unjust bears witness to what God considers just and unjust. Philosophers call this the moral law. Theologians call it God's law written in the heart. Even the unjust bear witness to this reality by what they desperately try to conceal or rationalize if their power is removed and they are held to account for their actions. But when they aren't held to account, when they do as they unjustly and wickedly please and God doesn't intervene, we try to understand. And like Asaph, we can't. We can find it a wearisome task. We can become pricked in the heart and embittered in the soul. Here's the real danger. The indignance we feel towards injustice the way we're supposed to feel towards injustice can metastasize into bitterness in our soul toward God and this apparent lack of concern and willingness to take action against injustice. This can turn us into brutish and ignorant, leading us to fall away from God or to distort his word into saying that it does not say because in our lack of faith we cannot bear it. Few things drive us to twist the scriptures like the problem we have with evil and the pain it can cause to us and to those we love. This is a root-bearing poisonous and bitter fruit that defiles many, as Hebrew warns us. Counsel for the embittered soul. So what do we do when, like Asaph, our heart is pricked and we feel the bitterness in our soul and it makes us question if God really sees, if he really cares, if he's really in control, if he really exists? The remedy God provides us against the brutish ignorance of unbelief is simple, but it is profound and it is pervasive. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. It's almost like when, when you praise the sacrifice of praise, when you praise when you don't get what you want, or when things are the same circumstances that you've always been in. It is a delight in God's ears because that means you trust him. Because that, like, like Donna said in one of these things, um, he got, she goes, uh, this doesn't mean, of course, that James Bruce is guaranteed a place in the rainbow omega slot it doesn't mean, however, that it does mean, however, that if God wants James Bruce there, he can get him there. And if he doesn't want him there, I don't want him to be there. I don't want that. It's like, 
Now, do you want this? Like Moses, when, when Moses was, God was so furious with the Israelites, he just said, I'm not going to go with y'all anymore. And Moses said, well, I'm not going. And God said, I'm going to send an angel before you. You can have the promise in. You can have everything I promised. The only thing is, I'm not going with you. And Moses said, well, then I'm not going. Do you love God that much? If he said, okay, I'm going to give you everything on your wish list, but I'm not going to be with you. Would you take him or would you take that? That's basically what Moses did. He said, I'm not doing that. That's what God wants from his children. He wants us to trust us that much, even though it's hard, because he wants us to believe in the depths of our soul that what he's allowing is conforming us into the image of his son, and it is for our ultimate good. Even though it hurts like crazy, even though it's not what we would choose. This can sound so trite, so cliche, when what we want from God are answers and more immediately action. This is not cliche. This is the Bible, all of it. The Bible is God's book of justice. The whole thing is about God's justice, about his ultimately making every wrong right and exhaustively settling every account of every moral agent, visible and invisible to us, that has ever perpetrated even the smallest injustice. Nothing will be missed. Nothing, nothing for God will by no means clear the guilty not without fully satisfying his holy righteous law. It will not be a pretty sight. This is why he gives people chances upon chances upon chances upon chances. This is why he gets so annoyed with his servants when he says, go, Jonah, and tell these people. And Jonah says, I ain't doing it. And then this one, this one right here this morning, I was just reading this morning, I thought, I'm going to share this because it's just so, I love Moses, I love Moses. But Moses is, God is telling Moses, he says, um, I want you to go and I want you to take the Israelites. I mean, here's Moses, like he's tending sheep, you know. He's like, okay, Beth, you're tending sheep, and now I want you to go tell somebody that some, you know, I want to tell them you're going to let those Israelites go. And Moses answered, what if, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord does not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran away from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take, take it by the tail. So Moses reached out his hand and took hold of the snake and turned it back, and, turned, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that you may believe that the Lord is the God of, of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside the cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back in the cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into the cloak, and then he took it out again. It was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become bloody on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Now, this is not, this is not true because in the back it, was, it, was, it talks about it, and I can't remember what, what uh, book it's in, that he was trained in, um, in speech and in tongues. So Moses had been trained when he was in, in, in uh, Pharaoh's household, when he was being raised. Oh, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue, the Lord said to him. 
Who gave man his mouth? Who did it? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's like, I don't want to do this. And he's going, you have no idea what I am offering you, Moses. Can you imagine being Moses? You have no idea what you're getting ready to do for me. You have no idea when you say no to this, what he's got in store for you through that. Don't miss out on the best for your life. And Moses says, send somebody else. And God, then guess what God did? Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. The same very word that Jonah did said burned for the Lord. He was so mad that his nostrils flared. That's the same word. The Lord was furious with Moses. He goes, okay. He goes, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak. (laughs) I mean... It's so funny. I mean, he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. I mean, everything in God's, everything. He's already on his way. He's about to be here. You know, he'll go with you and do it. You'll be like God to him. But guess what, Moses? You're missing out on the blessing. Aaron gets the blessing. You don't. And we don't want that. We don't want that. We must trust him with all our hearts and not lean on our very limited perspectives. We have the most narrow, pinpointed perspective of life. Understanding the real world. If the catastrophe of Eden teaches us anything, it teaches us that we are ill-equipped to manage the knowledge of good and evil. We are ill-equipped with it. The bitterness of soul that Asaph describes is a warning that it is time to hand back the fruit before it bears something poisonous and bitter in us. We don't want to become bitter because bitterness just destroys the vessel it's in. If the... You could trust, you, I don't know how he says it. You could trust a figure or whatever of the cross of Jesus teaches us anything. It teaches us that God does not take injustice lightly. That he is, in fact, willing to go to the extremes. You know, even in the ten, ten things that he went down in Egypt, every one of those things was a chance. Every one of those things. If you let my people go, you won't have all this stuff. Everything was a chance. He made his power known. God made his power known to them. Even Pharaoh. Even Judas. If Judas had gone back to the right person, instead of to the, instead of to the scribes and Pharisees with the money, if he had gone back to Jesus and said, I'm sorry, I repent, he would have been forgiven. We don't know the extent of God's love. It's, it's amazing that he in fact is willing to go extremes we would never imagine in order to fully settle accounts at the cross God's righteous unwillingness to clear the unjust kisses the, his righteous desire to pardon the repentant sinner okay um, I'm not going to finish that but that it is, it is really good about bitterness, but I don't have time to finish it, so anyway. Okay, uh, the last one is our fix. What do we dwell on when we are in a Jonah state of mind? What is it you dwell on? I know for me, I dwell on the circumstances. <laughs> you know, and, and the more I wallow in the, in the pigsty, the dirtier I get. 
What do we fix our minds on? It is, our pro- is it our problems? How we can get rid of what we do not want or get what we do want? Do we fix our eyes on our own purposes and plans or on God's perfect truth? Often in our distress, we need to be reeled in and reminded of the simple yet profound truths of God's word. This is why I'm big on scripture memory, because when it's in your heart, you, it, the Holy Spirit brings it to light. It'll bring it up to light. It's almost like, okay, yeah, you're right, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. The promise of scripture serves as a balm to the weary soul and as a sweetness of honey to the mouth. To be reminded that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he's molding us into the image of his son, that he knows the intensity of the heat, and that he sustains us and keeps us standing even when the fiercest storms blow. All will calm the weariest of souls. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 15, 50, this is what the Lord said, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wasteland. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Just exactly what Psalm 1 says. You know. He also adds in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 14b, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I know them. They're plans to prosper you and not to harm you. They're plans to give you a hope and a future. <laughs> then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. I will listen to you. I love the I wills of God. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring will bring you back from captivity. Um, I love uh, Psalm 91 is the I wills of God. He, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he's my rescue, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You'll only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. What does that mean, no harm will befall you, when all this hard things happen? No, nothing that will not turn out for your ultimate good is what it means. That's what it means. It will, whatever, he can take whatever ash and make it into beauty. And that's what he's all about doing. Um, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, 
You'll trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. I will. Those are the things that you say. Lord, you said. Lord, you said. Lord, you said. Help me here. Help me. And don't quit until you have that peace. Um, back to our story. Oh, wait. I'm not there. We would do well to have some go-to verses stored in our hearts for times when we just get overrun with emotions. And y'all, women just get overrun with emotions, pain in our day. We just do. <laughs> it doesn't take much. It's invaluable. As Jesus has promised, we will have tribulations, not if. God lovingly wants to care for his children, especially in the wilderness of our lives. As you lean and depend upon him, he will ever prove himself faithful. David Mathis says, God is honored when we approach his words as those that revive the soul and rejoice the heart, as those that are more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. The summary and culmination of Psalm 119's unashamed tribute to God's word is this, great reward. It is. It's like great reward. He means for us to experience his words as my delight. And y'all, nobody can give this to you. You must do it yourself. This is, this is something between you and God. He teaches you exactly what you need as you're reading it each day. It's crazy how it can be so pertained to what I'm doing in life every day. It's so, I mean, it's, it's amazing because it's alive and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And it, it divides soul and spirit, joint and mirror, and, and judges thoughts and attitudes of your heart. It does that because it's alive. He means for us to experience his words as my delight and as the joy of my heart, as the delight of my heart, as kindling of the fires for joy. All these are quotes from Psalm 119. God gives his own life-giving words to steady our souls and the souls of others. That's another beauty about uh, having scripture memorized. You don't have to. You just can be saying stuff, and they don't even know your quote scripture. And it's alive. Back to our story, Jonah was so distraught with emotions that he did not even reply to God's question. Instead, he left the city, built a crude shelter, perhaps the tree branches, and just sat down in the dust and its shade. This was apparently giving Jonah a clear vantage point of the city because he wanted to see maybe, just maybe, God would, would, uh, would judge him. Perhaps he was hoping that God would answer his plea and judge us in any way. Our prophet was simply unable to imagine that God could, would not carry out his justice on people so deserving as the Ninevites. Because he didn't understand God's heart. He refused to accept that God would extend mercy and compassion to people other than the Israelites. He had made up his mind that God would not show them mercy. And he couldn't have been any further from the truth. His actions appear like a sulking child. Obviously, he had forgotten that he, who also deserved death for disobedience, was mercifully delivered by God. I mean, like I said earlier, we all stand level at the foot of the cross. We're all big, fat sinners in need of a Savior. And those that know Jesus have bread to give a starving beggar just like them, just like they were. <clears throat> For the second time in the book, Jonah abandoned his place in ministry. We see how God feels about that, right? He burned with anger towards Moses, his friend. 
He left the city. He sat down in a place east of the city where he could see what would happen. Without answering God, the petulant prophet stomped angrily off, clear out of the city. He missed so many opportunities by being childish and selfishly sulking. He could have taught the Ninevites so much about the one true God of Israel. He was the only one of the Ninevites that knew all this stuff. And yet he's going to go so because they're going to be saved. Or God's going to say, stay his hand. He didn't want them to be saved. He wanted the goodies, but he didn't want to share the goodies. He, he preferred to wallow in his self-pity pouting because he wasn't getting his way. Much akin to the prodigal's older brother in the parable, he wouldn't go in and enjoy the feast. He's going to stand out there and pout because he never had a big fat oxen slaughtered for his celebratory feast, right? It's not fair. It's not. Uh, that's right. Life isn't. It's in October. That's the only fear I know. It's worth going to. What a tragedy it is when God's servants are a means of blessing to others but miss the blessing themselves. See, Jonah had just had this huge revival. And he missed the whole blessing. Just like Moses was going to miss the blessing of, of not being, of not talking. Um, God wants his word and his ways to land in the hearts of his people, meaning it is his desire for our wholehearted devotion and willing minds. This is because the way to the heart is through the mind. In his mind, Jonah had a preconceived.